I invite you to keep your Bibles turned to Psalm 103. That's going to be where we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, as I begin this morning, you might notice Dominic here behind me pulling this big ladder out. So uh, now that I've called him out, you're going to have to pay attention to me and not to him as he sets this ladder up. So this is a test to see how well you can focus on me. In fact, I asked Paul before the service started, can somebody bring this ladder out? And he said, yeah, have Dominic do it. He's the worship intern. He'll do anything, right? Actually, he's been awesome. He's been our worship intern for this last summer, and it's been great. He's going to go to Friends to study worship music, be a worship leader someday. So can you guys give him a encouragement? <laughs> Pretty cool to have an internship program. Thanks for doing that with our church. So as I begin this morning, I want to ask a question. Have you ever heard someone ask a question about what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I find it interesting to hear some Christians respond maybe in this way. Uh, sometimes I hear people say the Old Testament would describe God's righteousness, his holiness, uh, his emphasis on the law, the Ten Commandments as given to Moses, and our inability to live up to God's standards set out in the law. And in the New Testament, they might describe the New Testament describes God's grace, God's love and his grace, and it's become... Uh, evident that since we can't keep God's standards, God has to provide a way for us. And so in the New Testament, uh, his love and his grace is given through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, and his life, his death, his resurrection. And so Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross. And so the Old Testament is about God's holiness and the law, and the New Testament is about God's love and gives testimony to his grace. And while much of that is true, it makes it sound somewhat like the God of the Old Testament is only about the law and there is no grace in that God. And that the God of the New Testament is all about love and grace and that the law has been abolished. And the truth is, is that the two come together, that God is both law and grace in the Old Testament and he's truth and grace in the New Testament as well. In fact, Jesus said, I come full of grace and truth, both things. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so the God of the Old Testament uh, defines his holiness, his righteousness by the law, but he's also a God who shows and demonstrates grace throughout the Old Testament. In fact, I'd say every word of Psalm 103 that was just read cries out that the God of the Bible is a God of grace. And have you experienced the grace of God? Have you thought about recently how much God's grace has been poured out in your life? Have you given thanks to God for the grace that he has demonstrated, that he has given to you in your life? Today we're going to take some time to reflect on the grace that God provides for us as it's described in this psalm. So as we begin to look at this passage, even as we look at the very beginning verse, it starts with a very personal tone. Notice who the psalm is addressed to. The psalmist is talking to himself when he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's like he's trying to stir himself into worship by saying, okay, come on, soul, it's time to praise. It's time to worship God. Now, the word for praise in this first verse is the same word that's translated bless throughout the Old Testament. And it might seem odd to you and I that we can bless God by what we say or by what we do, but the Bible is clear that we do bring blessing to God, especially when when we recall all the things that God has done, when we speak well of him and we call attention to all these things that God has done to enrich our lives. 
And how often do we pray, God, bless me. God, would you bless my plans? God, would you bless my decisions that I'm going to make today? God, would you bless our nation today? Now, I would say that's not incorrect to pray and to ask God for his blessing. But if only we only pray asking God to bless us and we don't pray asking that we would bless God, then our prayers are somewhat short-sighted. So think about it this way. Instead of saying, God, would you bless me? What if our prayers said, God, may my decisions today bless you. May, may the choices I make with my life bless you. May my actions, may my uh, life bring blessing and honor and glory to your name, Lord. Lord, may our nation do things, make decisions, be the kind of country that would be a blessing to you. May we do uh, what, what you want us to do so that we might bless you and bring honor to you. Do you see how that changes things? So I think it's both of those things. But it also is an opportunity for us to consider how can we bless God by how we live or the decisions we make. The second verse we see the opposite of praising God is forgetting God's benefits. When we overlook the great things that God has done to enrich our lives, then we're not praising him. Another word that we can use for benefits in that passage is God's grace. Forget not all his grace. Instead of neglecting God's grace, the psalmist is stirring himself to remember, to praise God, to bless God for all the grace that God has demonstrated in his life. So in verses 3 through 5, we're reminded of God's grace. And that's the first way I think that God shows us he cares in this passage. With his grace, God gives us gifts that we don't deserve. We're going to talk a little bit more about forgiveness later on in this psalm, but but notice in verse 3, we learn the singer or the psalmist has experienced God's healing of disease. Now, I don't think this is a promise that God is always going to heal every disease, but it's a statement of praise that's coming from the psalmist that indicates that, that healing has come to him. He's experienced physical healing. He's been restored to wholeness, not because of anything he's done to earn this healing, but it comes purely as a gift of grace from God. And the psalmist also has been rescued from death's door, redeemed out from the pit. And that, too, is an act of sheer grace, a free gift that can't be earned or bought. And out of gracious love, God had delivered the psalmist from some life-threatening circumstance. And God had also crowned the psalmist with love and compassion. God filled the heart of the psalmist with good things. The word satisfied that's used in verse 5 is the same word that is used to feel when we feel like we've just finished a gourmet meal, how we feel satisfied. Think about uh, when you have Thanksgiving dinner, how good you feel when you're done eating, if you haven't eaten too much, right? And that can be a challenge sometimes, but think about how satisfied you feel and, and how you tell the person who cooked that meal, oh, that was wonderful, I feel so good. That was such an incredible experience. That's the kind of thing the psalmist is telling us when we reflect on God's love and his grace in our lives. We ought to have that kind of reaction. God, this life you've given to me, it is so good. It is so satisfying when I am in your presence. I am so satisfied. I am so joyful. God had renewed the psalmist's strength as well, so he felt like he could soar like an eagle. And all these things are benefits in verse 2. There are examples of God's grace, examples of good gifts that God showers down on people who don't deserve it. 
And the concept of grace broadens even further in the New Testament where God's gift is a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ, and it's offered as a gift of grace. Listen to the words in the New Testament. This is Paul who's writing in Ephesians. In chapter 1 he says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that God lavished on us. Later in chapter 2 he says it this way. He says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God's grace is what makes the Christian faith unique, makes it different than any other religion in the world. Philip Yancey says it this way. He says, The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge with no strings attached seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers us a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Again, the second verse says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I want to tell you a story I think that helps us understand and demonstrates just how gracious God is to us, the grace of God that has come to us. Bill Hybels tells this story. Bill Hybels is the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. And he was on a flight a number of years ago, and he talks about how when he was seated on the flight, it was a long flight, and he was seated next to somebody that he perceived by looking at to be a successful businessman. The guy was dressed in a real sharp three-piece suit, and he just looked like he handled himself well and professionally, and, and Hybels assumed some kind of businessman. And so these guys began to talk, and they, as guys do, they always ask, well, what do you do for a living? And the guy told him, hey, I'm a businessman, I own a corporation, and, and he was a successful businessman. He was going on a trip uh, for business. And then the guy asked Bill Hybels, well, what do you do? And Bill Hybels always told him the thing that we're always scared of saying when we're a pastor. I'm a pastor. And we get the chance to watch people react to us when we say that. They're kind of like, ah, the pastor. They treat us a little differently. So, But the guy kept the conversation up. He hesitated a little bit, but he kept going. And, in fact, the conversation turned towards spiritual things. And Bill Hybels, uh, towards the end of the conversation, he ends up asking the guy, do you believe in life after death? And the guy said, yes, I, I do believe in life after death. And then he asked, Hybels asked him, do you believe that everyone's going to go to heaven someday? And he said, you know, I don't believe that. He says, I think that, that we're going to be judged by what we do. And many, many people will be with God because they've been good people, but there'll be a lot of people who aren't going to be with God because they've done some very bad things. And Bill Hybels said, well, that's an interesting thought. I, I understand what you're saying. He says, now here's the question for you. Do you believe that you're going to go to heaven someday? And he says, well, you know, he goes, I think I've been a pretty good person. He goes, I, I haven't been perfect, but I've been a good dad. I've been a good husband. I've tried to be a good businessman. I've tried to be ethical and make good decisions and treat people fairly. And he goes, I haven't been perfect. I've made some mistakes. But he says, overall, he goes, I think I'm in a pretty good place with God. That would be my estimation. But he says, be honest with you, I don't really know. I don't see how anyone can know if they're truly going to go to heaven or not. And Bill Hybels told the guy, he says, well, you know what, I'm pastor, I've, I've studied God's, the Bible, God's Word, for many, many years. He goes, I think the Bible tells us we can know for certain if we're going to be with God for eternity or if we're going to be separated from Him for eternity. And he said, do you mind if I kind of show you why I think I, we can know this? And the guy said, yeah, go ahead, show me. 
And so Bill Hybels pulls a napkin out of his pocket, and on a napkin on the airplane, he draws a picture of a ladder, somewhat like this ladder. And on the top of the ladder, he writes God. And he says, you know, we look at God and we, and we would say that, that God is perfect and God is holy and, and God is righteous and he's perfect in his love. And, and would you agree, agree that, that God is the standard by which we're all going to be judged someday? And whether we're going to have a relationship and be with God for eternity. And the guy said, yeah. He goes, I think God is the standard. And God's the one who's going to make that decision. So, yeah, he's the standard. And, he, and then Bill Hybels said, well, who should we put at the bottom of the ladder? Like, who's the, the person or the people that are furthest away from God? And the guy kind of hesitated. He was afraid to say anything. And Hybels said, well, let's put, like, mass murderers down there. You know, people that have just done atrocious things for humanity. He said, I'm going to write down the name of Adolf Hitler, you know, one of the, we would think, one of the most evil people. He said, would you agree that that guy's probably far away from God? And he said, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And so he put Adolf Hitler's name down at the bottom of the ladder. And so he said, well, okay, we've got God up here. He's the standard. We've got serial killers, mass murderers at the bottom, far away from God. He said, well, in relationship to these things, where would you put yourself in relationship to God on the ladder? And the guy kind of hesitated, not quite sure how to respond. And so Bill Heibel said, well, I'll tell you what, before you put your name somewhere on the picture, he said, why don't we put a few other names? Is it okay if I put a few other names on there? And the guy said, well, yeah, let's, that's fine. Let's do that. And he said, okay, who do you think is the most upstanding, righteous person on earth today? Now, this was about 20 years ago. And the guy said, well, think about that. He goes, I'm going to say Mother Teresa. And, and Bill Heibel said, well, that's, that's a good choice. He says, she's, she's a pretty good person. And she's done a lot of really good things, and she's made it her life goal to, to do God's will. And, and he says, it's amazing you've mentioned her name, because he said, I, I've met Mother Teresa. Uh, I've actually gone and served in the mission field at her orphanage in India. I know her. And he goes, if, if it's okay with you, I, I feel like I know where she would go on the ladder, where she would say she would put herself on the ladder. You know, even though she's made it her goal to follow God, she's not been perfect. And she, in fact, says she's made lots of mistakes with her life and, and hasn't, she hasn't always obeyed God's will for her life. She hasn't always treated people well. There's times she gets angry and she treats people uh, unfairly, not like people like God would treat them. And she, he goes, I think Mother Teresa would put herself somewhere, you know, almost like in the middle or maybe just above the middle. And he said when he put that, her name right there, the guy's face kind of fell like, uh-oh, if Mother Teresa's there, where are the rest of us, Right. And he goes, okay, let's put somebody else's name on there. He goes, who do you think is the most upstanding, righteous person in America, an American? And he said, well, I, I would guess Billy Graham. And he goes, Billy Graham, he goes, I think that's a good choice. I think you're picking somebody who's really tried to live after God. And he goes, I would agree with you. And he goes, you know, it's amazing you picked him as well. I know Billy Graham. And the guy's looking at him like, who are you? <laughs> he goes, hey, Billy Graham has actually asked me to speak at some of his crusades. I've met him. I know him. And he goes, I can tell you this. I know Billy, and I know Billy doesn't think he's kind of on the same level as Mother Teresa. He put himself somewhere down here, just below her. And the guy's face fell even further. Oh, no, he's in trouble. And he said, you know what, before I ask you to put your name on the, on the ladder somewhere, he goes, I'm going to put my name on there because he said, I think that's only fair that I go first. And he goes, you know, I told you that I'm a pastor and I've made it my life's goal to serve God and to serve his church and to know him and to try to represent him well. But he goes, I'm like you. He goes, I've made some mistakes with my life, uh, some big errors. And he goes, I, you know, I've done some things to hurt my wife. I've disappointed my children. 
I haven't always treated people the way they should be treated. I've made some really bad decisions that didn't always uh, follow God's will. And he goes, I'm not on the same level as Billy Graham. I'd have to put myself somewhere below Billy. And he wrote his name down there. And then he said, well, well where would you now put your name on this list, on this, on this ladder? And the guy thought for a moment. He said, well, he goes, you know, as much as I, as good as I've done, he goes, I, you know, I haven't made it my life's work to be a pastor, to, to honor God. And he goes, I've just tried the best I can, so I've got to put myself somewhere probably underneath your name. And then Bill Hybels asked him, he said, well, okay, here's my only question. What's your plan to make up the gap between where your name is and where God is? And the guy didn't know how, quite how to respond. And Bill Hybels told him, he says, well, I know Mother Teresa. And he goes, I know what her plan is. He goes, she's trusting in the grace of God. She's trusting in the grace of God that's come through Jesus on the cross. And he goes, I know Billy Graham, and, and I know Billy Graham's trusting in the grace of God that, that's been demonstrated through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He goes, what about you? How are you going to make up the gap? And he goes on, and this is what he told the guy on the airplane. He said, if you believe that you can rise to the standard of God's holiness on a self-improvement program, you're going to waste the rest of your life in spin cycle. Real freedom is found when you ditch man-made plans and choose instead to accept the grace of God through the work that Jesus did on the cross. You can be forgiven. You can live an abundant life. Your morality gap can be closed once and for all by choosing faith in Christ. To me, that's a profound statement about how the grace of God goes to work in our lives. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not God's amazing grace. And if verses 3 through 5 describe God's grace, then verse 6 describes God's justice. And with his justice, God treats us with fairness. And without justice, there would be no need for grace. But God is a just God. In verse 6, the psalmist confesses his conviction that God is just. And we may see in our own lives, in our own system, so to speak, that justice sometimes fails. Maybe it fails in our own court system. But no one slips through the courtroom of God in his justice. And God works to accomplish righteousness. And God also protects the rights of the oppressed. He talks about this in the verse. The oppressed are people who exist in every society, who have no one to look out for their welfare and for the, uh, their needs and to protect their rights. And it's one of the things that I love about the city, the work that's being hap- happening through that ministry. Because what, what's happening is people are standing in the gap for these kids and saying, hey, we want to come alongside you and demonstrate the love of Christ to help you to learn how to do better in school and how to have stronger social skills so that you can discover your full potential in God. It's ministries like that that reach out to people who uh, are oppressed, who don't have the advantages that some others do. And in ancient Israel, it was the widow and the orphan and and the foreigner who were oppressed. And God protects the rights and the needs of those who the rest of the society turns a deaf ear to and a blind eye to. And God cares for you and for me by treating us with fairness. And God doesn't play favorites with people. He doesn't love Billy Graham or Mother Teresa more than he loves Vladimir Putin in Russia or more than he loves you or more than he loves me. He treats everyone with equity. 
Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his justice. And if in 8 we encounter God's love, look at verse 8. With his love, God overflows in faithfulness to us. Now the word that's translated love in verse 8 is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed combines two ideas. One is love and the other is loyalty in the same word. And what the psalmist is saying is that God is a faithful God, a loyal God, but he's also a loving God, and those two things go together. And that word is in the Old Testament 246 times. And the word doesn't translate well into English, into one word, and so that's why we get phrases like loving kindness and steadfast love and faithful love. It takes multiple words to say God's loyal love is for us. And the other words that are in verse 8 are further descriptions of God's hesed, his loyal love. The word compassion describes the tender affection that a mother feels towards her newborn baby. And that's how God feels towards us. In fact, the psalmist is saying, basically, if you can imagine the love that a mother has for her newborn child, take that time times 10,000. That's how much God loves us. We can't even imagine how great that love is for us. And so in response, you know, we think about even the New Testament descriptions of God's love, how much God loves us. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul talks about in Romans, he said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. Infinite beyond uh, how much a, a mother loves her infant child. Praise the Lord. O oh, my soul, and forget not his incredible, faithful love to us. And if verse 8 describes God's love, then verses 9 through 12 describes God's mercy. And with his mercy, God provides a way for us to be forgiven. In fact, verse 10, I think, is a great definition of mercy. It says, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. If grace is giving us good gifts that we don't deserve, then mercy is not treating us the way that we deserve because of the bad things that we've done. So grace is giving us good gifts, and mercy is withholding judgment that we deserve. And if God treated us in proportion for our sins and our failures, we'd be all hopelessly separated from God. We're back to the latter, aren't we? If God's mercy is not present, we are hopelessly separated with no way of connecting with God, with a holy and a righteous God. And in the midst of this, the forgiveness that God provides through his mercy is as broad as the space between earth and heaven. He says, so great is my love, it's greater than the height the heavens are from the earth. It's a love that we can't even define by our words, because when we think about how far the heavens are above the earth, we can't define that. It's like a fifth dimension where the heavens are at. We don't even have dimensions that can describe how much God loves us. And he goes on, he says, it's a forgiveness that removes our sins from the east, as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. So he's declaring his love for us is as high as his heavens, and his mercy is as great, and he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, thinking about how far is that? How far is the east from the west? Uh, if, if some way I was able to package all my sin in a box and I was able to give it to one of you, say, Steve Riley, you've got my sin package, Steve. Steve, I want you to walk 
all the way to the furthest eastern point from where I am, or western point, whichever way you walk, go to the opposite side of the world and take my sins there. Steve would have to walk 12,500 miles. I'm not even sure he could do it before the guy dies. I mean, that's how far that is. But the other thing is that God's not limited by the distance on earth, right? We, we serve and we worship a God who created the universe. Everything that we see on earth, but everything we see in space, God created. And so I began to research this week, well, just how far is the east from the west in the universe? And I, and I went and I found that scientists today say that they can make, have evidence that they can see light that was produced 45 billion light years away from the Earth. Now, that's a long ways, and I'm not a scientist, so I was having a hard time grasping how far is that. So then I went and looked, how far is the sun's light away from the Earth? And the sun's light is eight minutes in life years. Now, we're not talking hours, not talking days. Eight minutes in light years away from the Earth is the sun. And so if we can see 45 billion light years away, that's a long, long, long way. That's my scientific description of how far the east is from the west. And that's just how far we can see. We believe there's space that goes on much further than we can see. The reality is the psalmist is giving us a description that when we confess our sins to God, this is how gracious and how merciful God is. He takes our sins and he casts them as far as the west is from the east. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And what the reality is we're giving, he's giving us a description is we can't even see how far that is. We can't even imagine how far that is. So the good news is when we confess our sins and we give them to God, God takes them away and they're gone forever. Never to be seen ever, ever again. That's great news. Now, forgiveness is never automatic in the Bible. It's not as if God can look the other way and pretend like we've never sinned. And so God always provide, has always provided a way for sin to be dealt with. In the Old Testament, it was the sacrificial system. And so when people would sin, they would sacrifice animals, and they would, in essence, place their sin on the animal and kill the animal. And that was the payment for their sins. The problem was is they didn't stop sinning. And so year after year after year, they had to keep sacrificing animals. And the reality is, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to a day when God would deal with their sin, the sin of humanity, once and for all. And that's what, that's what Jesus Christ came to do. In fact, his cousin John the Baptist said, look, when he sees Jesus, he said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hundreds of years later, after the psalmist wrote this verse, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would become the basis for the psalmist's experience of forgiveness in this psalm, even though the singer had never heard Jesus' name mentioned before, he looked forward to the cross just like we look now backward to the cross. The reality is is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross literally is the hinge event of the world. It's the turning point of human history. The ability for our sins to be taken away is as far as the east is from the west. God's mercy provides us with a way to be forgiven, that's in accordance with God's righteousness. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his forgiving mercy. That's how God cares for us, with his grace, with his justice, with his love, with his mercy. He demonstrates his grace for us by giving us gifts that we don't deserve, by treating us with fairness, by overflowing in faithfulness to us. 
and by providing a way for us to be forgiven. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Forget not all His grace. And experiencing God's grace in our life is not automatic. But it comes as we enter into a covenant relationship with God. And when the psalm was written, the covenant relationship was the covenant that came through Moses. And the way that you came into a covenant with God was you became an Israelite. Literally, the males would have themselves circumcised. And you made a commitment to follow the the law of Moses. And you uh, entered into the people of Israel. And this made you a part of the covenant community. And it was through this relationship that you were ushered into the presence of God, a personal relationship with God, where you experienced his grace in your life. But when Jesus came, he established a whole new covenant a new way of knowing God and experiencing God's grace that was based on trusting Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And instead of being circumcised, we express our entrance into the new covenant with water baptism. That's why next Sunday afternoon is so awesome. Because we're going to be celebrating new life in Christ. A new relationship for people with the living God. And when we uh, express that relationship through water baptism, the Bible tells us that God loves everyone in the world, but not everyone will experience the benefits of that love unless they enter into a covenant relationship with the living God. And have you done that? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal leader, Lord, Savior, believing that he lived a perfect life that you could not live on your own, And believing he died a death that you deserved and he didn't. Again, the separation that we experience from God. Jesus is literally the one who bridges that gap. He accomplishes for us what we could not accomplish on our own. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ? Or are you still stuck somewhere down here at the bottom of the ladder? Still striving to try to be the person that God would accept and that would equal God's holiness and his righteousness? The reality is is that you'll never make it from here to there. It only happens by trusting in Christ for what's already been accomplished, what he's already done for us. The reality is is that the Bible tells us that Jesus, through Jesus, he, Jesus, became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And how do we trust in Christ? Well, the Bible says simply, if you uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved, that God will literally close the gap, that we will become and be called the sons and the daughters of the living God. See, here's the thing. That kind of reminder ought to cause us to be just like the psalmist and say, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and we give you thanks this morning. We thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for your grace. A grace that's been present since the beginning of creation. God, we thank you that your grace came to us most fully in your Son, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived amongst us a perfect life, who died a death that we all deserved, And he didn't. But he was willing to take upon himself the sins, our sins, and then allow us 
to be made free, to become literally righteous sons and daughters of the living God. God, I pray uh, for all of us today, but I especially pray for those who maybe haven't yet made that decision or that choice to give themselves fully, to receive the gift that Jesus offers to us, the gift of eternal life, the gift of a new life in Christ. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work causing them to say yes, to confess Jesus as Lord, to believe that you raised him from the dead, and therefore to have eternal life. God, we thank you for the grace that comes to us, grace at every moment. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.